Let's just pray one more time. Father, we thank you for this great privilege to be caught up in your purposes in the world, all bound up with the gospel of your dear Son. And we pray that you would shape us as your people, just as we sung, that uh, you would fill us with your Spirit, empower us to be bold, effective witnesses for you, that we may, say, we may see your kingdom uh, come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, what is the book of Philippians about? Uh, if you could only use two words to summarize the whole book, what would they be? I don't know. Why don't you just get a pen right now and have a go? Two words. Scribble it down on your uh, notice sheets. If you had to pick two words that summarize the book of Philippians, why don't you have a go right now, scribbling it down on the sheet? And while you do that, let me tell you about a great analogy. A friend of mine likened the Bible to a golf bag of 66 books. The golfers will like this one. And um, each club uh, has a different design and function. Each book of the Bible has a unique message and a purpose, a point of why it was written. And so for Christians who, who know that the Bible is the Word of God, one of the goals that we should have uh, as we go through life is to understand and apply the whole Bible to our lives. Now that's kind of an overwhelming task, isn't it? Think about applying the whole Bible to your life. And so how you break this down is you try and understand what each book of the Bible is about. Uh, summarize the main point of the book. And it's helpful if you can get it down to like a word or a couple of words to log it into your head so you know what each book of the Bible is there for. It's, it's a great adventure. You've got the rest of your life to go at it. And uh, so, as we, you know, the idea is as you face the challenges of your life or as you seek to be helpful to other people, uh, we can approach the conversation the way a golfer approaches his next shot, you know. Uh, he tees off and the ball lands somewhere, depending how good you are. I'm often off in the rough somewhere behind a bush, uh, hunting for it. But then basically the, the golfer looks at where the ball's lying, looks where the pin is, look at where the obstacles are in the way, and he goes to his golf bag and goes, ah, I know just the club that will do the work here to get that ball in the right direction. And really that's how we should view the Bible. If we want to be helpful Christians... We want to so know and understand each book of the Bible that as we, as we try and be helpful to people and minister to them with God's word, we know they're constantly thinking, oh, I, I know the book that would really help right here. I know the book that's going to do that. And so what does this golf club of the book of Philippians do? What is the book of Philippians about? Now, hopefully you've got two words down there. Now, with this many people, we're not going to do audience participation, but uh, you can shield it and look at it yourself right now. I hope for those who've been studying uh, the book in, in fellowship groups, and by the way, it is an essential thing to be part of fellowship groups. I hope you're all involved with them. It's just, it's, you're really missing out if you're not part of a fellowship group. And for those studying in the fellowship groups or who've been listening to the sermons, uh, the last sort of three or four sermons, hopefully you've got two words on your sheet. And I'm hoping these two words are these. Gospel partnership. That's what I'm suggesting to you. Um, if you've got better words, come and tell me afterwards. I'll change the whole series. 
But these are the words I'm suggesting are a great summary of the book of Philippians, gospel partnership. So please open your Bibles uh, to page 1178. Now I've just discovered a new problem. We've got two sets of Bibles in the church, I've noticed. And so um, if you've got this sort of newer looking Burgundy Slim Bible, you need to turn to about page 830. Uh, did I bring one up? No, I didn't. But if you've got one of these, you'll turn to page 1,179. Just, just look with me. Um, just summarize where we're at to. Philippians chapter 1. Have a look at verse 3. The Apostle Paul is, is writing this letter from prison. He's probably in Rome. Uh, he's writing to a church that meets in the city of Philippi. And so far, he's basically thanked them for their gospel partnership. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then he wanted them to know about his own situation of imprisonment. He was in prison waiting trial, didn't know whether it was going to result in a death sentence or not. And, uh, but he wants them to know that, 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 that being in prison has not held back the, the work of spreading the good news about Jesus. Look at chapter 1. Verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And one of the ways, verse 13, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Paul was bound, but the gospel was not. He just kept sharing it, and it was advancing. And, and we, we've, we've looked in past weeks for, that for Paul... What really mattered to him was not his freedom. It was not uh, living a comfortable life. What was important to him was that the good news of Jesus Christ should be proclaimed. And we saw in chapter 1, verse 21, this amazing statement. For to me, Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now here's the Apostle Paul, a, a model gospel partner who lives for Christ he lived to see Jesus Christ proclaimed so that others could come to know him and trust him and receive him as their Lord and Savior and God and, and receive forgiveness for their sins. That's what he's about. That's what he's doing. He's a gospel partner, a model gospel partner. Now, at this point in the series, I could imagine that maybe as a Christian, we could possibly be saying to ourselves, well, that Paul, he was a marvelous fellow, wasn't he? An extraordinary fellow. He was unique. He was a special Christian. He was a, an apostle. He was a missionary. And of course, Paul was like that, but I, I am just a simple believer. You know, I don't have to do that gospel partnership, do I? Because I'm just a simple little believer. What does this gospel partnership mean for normal, everyday Christians like us? What does it mean for a church like Charlotte Chapel in Edinburgh today? Now, if you're thinking something like that, I'm so glad you came today. Today was a terrific day to come because uh, as we come to this next section in Philippians, we're going to see that Paul turns from comments about himself to, to what he wants to say to them as ordinary Christians uh, meeting in the church in Philippi. This is what he's got to say. So uh, hold on to your seats. And ooh, it got darker there somehow. Hold on to your seats. And uh, something exciting was going to happen, wasn't it? The lights dimmed. And I'm going to read Philippians chapter 1, 
and verses 27 to 30. Because this is where he moves to the application of his letter. So chapter 1, verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. I think there are three word pictures in our text today that I want to focus on so we can just get a, a basic grasp of this section. Three word pictures to help us think about what he's saying. And the first word is citizen. Citizen. As Paul sort of discusses this idea of gospel partnership with them, he employs this idea of citizenship. Now, in the original Greek language, the word that we have translated here as conduct yourselves, it is a word about conducting yourselves as a citizen. Now, it's hard for us to see this uh, in the English, unless you've got a great translation like the English Standard Version, which footnotes at the bottom. That, wouldn't it be wonderful to have... Anyway, let's leave that. <laughs> it would show you at the bottom that that's, that's underlying this word conduct yourself, this idea of being a citizen. And, and really, the main content of, of this letter to the church in Philippi is contained between two references of being citizens. This one in, in 127, and the next at the back of the book in 3 verse 20. So turn over to chapter 3 and verse 20. Uh, it's made crystal clear even in the English here. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they'll be like his glorious body. What a great hope to look forward to. Every year I get older, it gets a more precious hope. Now this is the idea, citizenship. Everyone is a citizen of at least one country. I have a British passport, which declares that I am a British citizen. And it states this wonderful thing. That I don't know whether you've read this in the front of your passport. It says this. Her Britannic Majesty's Secretary of State requests and requires, in the name of Her Majesty, all those whom it may concern to allow the bearer to pass freely without let or hindrance and to afford the bearer such assistance and protection as may be necessary and I have that passport. I can roam through Europe with this passport. I can return from America and walk through the shortest lines waving my passport. The poor Americans queue forever 
People from Latin America queue forever. I just walk in because I am a British citizen. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? It's a wonderful thing to be a citizen of any country, I guess. And while living in America, to the American government, do you know what I was? I had the status of being a legal resident alien. It fits. I know you're thinking that. It fits. For you, Paul, it fits. Maybe that's so, but that's what I was. And so while I lived in the United States, the reality was our home was like a little bubble of Britain, of Britishness. We were living in America as legal resident aliens, but in our home there was a bubble of being British citizens. We proudly listened to Radio 4 over the internet. We listened to John Humphreys haranguing politicians on the Today program. We, uh, on Christmas Day, we watched the Queen's speech. We stood when the uh, national anthem came. Uh, we sought to bring customs to uh, uh, our American friends. We put on Kayleys. We, we, we tried Morris dancing. We, we lived as British people amongst the Americans. Well, there's the concept, isn't it? Now, the Philippians knew this concept well. Their city, although a long way from Rome and situated in Macedonia, was really a Roman colony, a little bubble of Rome a ways from Italy. It ran under Roman law. It followed Roman customs, Roman taxation policies, and they were proud of their identity as Roman citizens, even though they lived in Macedonia. And when we become Christians, we gain a far more significant identity than being... uh, Italian, American, British, or even a Scot. Something far greater than any of those. We become citizens of heaven. That's what 3 verse 20 says, isn't it? And do you notice that this is not just a future reality, it is a a present reality. We are now citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, it says. And so when we become Christians, it's so important we understand that we've got a brand new identity. We become dual citizens. Um, You see that in the very first verse of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 1. Have a look at it with me. Look at the way he describes these people uh, who gather together as a church in chapter 1, verse 1. To all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Now, there's the dual citizenship. Do you see it? We're in two key locations. They are citizens of Rome, living in Philippi. They are citizens of heaven, living in Christ. Two amazing identities. And we have responsibilities as citizens of of, uh, Britain. But as we become Christians, we have far greater uh, responsibilities and privileges from being citizens of heaven. And uh, so as we turn to chapter 1, verse 27, the main application of the whole book is there in verse 27. If there is one command in the whole book, here it is. He doesn't know whether he will get out of prison or not. But whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now this is God's word to churches who want to be useful gospel partners. Remember our new identity as those who have believed in the gospel. We are citizens of heaven. We are those who are in Christ. And so because of this, we should live lives worthy of our identity, worthy of the gospel of Jesus 
Christ. It makes a real difference. There's a saying that says, old fishermen never die, they just smell that way. And uh, false Christianity is a lot like that. People who say that they're Christians, but there's nothing in their life that demonstrates anything about their profession of faith. It stinks. Uh, Knowing Jesus, having responded to the gospel of Jesus, will make a real difference in our lives. What the Bible says is, in, in many places, that there is a way of living that is inappropriate now for those who are Christians. And there is a way of life that is appropriate for the Christian because of this new identity. And the challenge to us as Christians, if you're a Christian here this morning, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here and uh, with us. But if you're a Christian this morning, uh, here's the challenge. Are we conducting our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel? Now, before we're looking at the practicalities of what that means, I just want to clear up one possible misunderstanding that we could have, one confusion. You cannot make yourself worthy to receive the gospel. We've got to be crystal clear on this. You don't make yourself worthy to receive this gospel. We cannot earn this gospel message of, of forgiveness and hope. We cannot by our own efforts or, or, do, or do anything that would merit God saving us. Nothing. The good news of the gospel of Christ is that though we have done nothing deserving merit before God, God has graciously done everything. We're going to come to the table later. And and these are symbols of the fact that he has done everything. He has made a way that we can be right with him. He has offered his own son, whose body was broken, whose blood was shed, so that we could receive forgiveness of sins. He makes us worthy. He puts us in Christ. He makes us citizens. He makes us fit to be citizens of heaven. There is a lifestyle that is worthy of such a gift. But you never make yourself worthy to receive this gift. Is that clear? Now having cleared that up, really, that one application, conduct worthy of the gospel, a life worthy of the gospel as heavenly citizens, that idea really then encapsulates the main teaching of the book that you find between 127 and chapter 4, verse 1. But today, we're just going to focus on these uh, three verses, 27 to 30. And I've got two more word pictures to try and help us. And uh, a word I want us to think about is uh, of being a, living a life worthy of the gospel is this word, that we're gladiators. We're gladiators. Don't believe me? Look at verse 27. Then whether I, am, I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Paul is saying that he longs to see them standing firm with a gospel purpose. That's what he's saying here. As citizens of heaven, do you know it is inevitable that we will find ourselves at times in contention with citizens of our country who don't like the gospel, who don't like Christ. It is inevitable that if we're citizens of heaven, 
even as we seek to be law-abiding citizens, we will find ourselves in contention with an unbelieving and hostile world. This is the experience of many Christians today in Muslim countries and in China. Last Sunday evening, I was in Glasgow and heard a report of what's happening in Turkey. And it's, it's a tough place to be a Christian, Turkey, right now. Uh, within the last two years, a number of people have been murdered for their faith in Malatya. Three men were murdered simply because they desired to share the good news of Jesus with Muslims. And, and Islamic fundamentalists martyred them, killed them. And the trial is going on right now, and it's a joke. These, these guys are getting away with murder. That's what it's like in the world today. And we're beginning to see more hostility in the UK, although, to be honest, it's still slight here, isn't it? It's what the church in Philippi had experienced when Paul first came and preached the gospel to them. They'd seen Paul being dragged before the magistrates, being beaten up and then thrown into prison for preaching Christ. And as Paul was writing this letter, he knows that they were facing suffering from opponents who were trying to frighten them. They were engaged in the same struggle that they saw Paul had and that they know that Paul is still having. And Paul is writing to them and he's saying, these people are trying to frighten you. Don't be frightened. Stand your ground. Don't run away. Stand firm on the ground of the gospel. Do not concede the gospel, but contend for the gospel. And increasingly, we need to take these verses seriously in our culture here. And the image uh, behind this word contend uh, is an athletic word. Uh, In fact, one commentary likened it to the image of a gladiator. He's urging them to stand together with a common gospel purpose, like gladiators in the Colosseum. Now, I don't know whether you've ever seen the movie Gladiator that came out. It it won numerous Oscars. Uh, It's a rather gruesome uh, business, but I must say I quite enjoyed it. uh, It tells you about one man who was the general, Maximus Decimus Meridius, how he's done wrong to and ends up as a gladiator. And there's this incredible scene where he's, he's dragged into the Colosseum at Rome with a disparate bunch of other gladiators. And the main plan is that basically these skilled forces are coming in on chariots with lots of javelins and they're just to be, the gladiators are just to be killed and massacred in front of all of them. And Maximus, the former general, sees that they are hopelessly outnumbered. They're all straggled about and he says, men, we must stand together if we have any chance. And so these guys all come together and they put their shields up. You've seen pictures of this, haven't you, where, where Roman soldiers go into battle against opponents, putting their shields together. They form like a kind of a little tank of men, put shields above them, shields behind them. And, and really, that is the picture that I think Paul is conveying in this verse about how they're going to stand against opponents who are trying to terrify them. They they need to be gladiators who work together. They are gladiators in the arena of faith. We don't go running around with swords. There's some people doing that in the States. We're not advocating that for Christians. Here's our sword. That's as terrifying as it gets for Baptists. The Bible. But we are to stand together for the sake of the gospel, contending together. 
And the reality is, when you stand together, even against great opponents, you can win. As Maximus did. You can win. And he says, basically, if we stand together, we can be saved. And they will be destroyed. And that's what happens. A bit gruesome. You might not want to watch it if you don't like gruesome things. That's the image that Paul has here. Look what they're contending for in verse 27. To contend for the faith of the gospel. This is something that has definite content. We're in a time where people are so shaky about what the gospel is. We're talking about the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That he is the substitutionary atonement for our sins. That he is the only hope of salvation. There is no other name unto heaven by which we must be saved than the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel and I hope that you're crystal clear on it. I hope it's the essence of what you're about, what your life is about. I hope that you're willing to contend for this gospel That's my question. Are we living our lives advancing the gospel, holding fast to the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, confessing the gospel in spite of opposition, in spite of temptation? Are we involved together in reaching out with the gospel, building up with the gospel, sending out with the gospel? Because that's what we're about at Charlotte Chapel. Are you standing with us in this great contention of our time to contend for the faith of the gospel well when we are doing that as a church it is a clear sign of two things Paul says uh, in verse uh, 28 it is a sign of the overthrow and utter defeat of our opponents and it is a sign of our salvation how will we know that we are saved well here's a sign Surprising sign, but as we face increasing hostility, and I think about that church in Turkey. Imagine being in Malatya. Uh, one of your missionaries, your pastor, and another great gospel worker has been massacred because they are contending for the gospel. This, this happened, what, 18 months ago, something like that? Sunday rolls around. Are you coming to church in Malatya? Are you going to walk through the doors? Are you going to sit with God's people? Are you going to sing His praises? Are you going to be willing to still say, Yes, I live for Jesus. He is the only way. This is the gospel. This is the truth. Now in that context of hostility, when you are still standing amongst God's people, contending side by side for the faith of the gospel, that is a sure sign of your salvation. See, if you're not the real deal, you're not turning up on Sunday, are you? Are you? I, at that point, nominal Christianity falls away. Don't you think? When three people get murdered? You, you're not turning up and linking yourself with this group of people when there's that much cost if you really don't believe it. And yet, if you're standing firm with your brothers in that context, it is a sign of your salvation. And Paul says, it is a sign, though dimly seen, no doubt, by your opponents, that they've lost. If they continue in their opposition, they're the ones who are going to be destroyed, not you. That's what he's saying. One last word. Gladiators, another word, gift. 
This is a very surprising word, but Paul wants to offer some encouragement to them as they are facing suffering. He wants to address them and he wants to put courage into them as they face this suffering. Look at this extraordinary word granted in verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, that on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Here's a view of suffering that we find hard to believe. Their call to suffer on behalf of the gospel has been granted to them. Their experience of suffering is a gracious gift from God. Now, I don't know how you handle this as a health, wealth, prosperity church, uh, where it's about getting easy and comfortable and everything being at peace. But here, if we're going to be citizens of heaven, we're going to be involved in a contention now. We may be involved in suffering now. And if we're involved in suffering, do you know what? It'll be a gift of God to us. That not only will we have the, had the privilege of trusting in Christ, but He's graciously granted us the privilege to be so identified with Christ that we suffer with Him. We need to get this stuff into our bones right now. Because it's, it's quite easy right now as a Christian, isn't it? But the days are coming where we will not be so. And we need to get this truth deep into our bones. We need to put steel in our backbones and know that this is New Testament Christianity. This was the call of Christ to the disciples, wasn't it? Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. In many parts of the world, this is exactly what it means. This is what the Philippian Christians were called to face. And we're only following the apostolic example of Paul, verse 30. You are engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. When you read to the Acts of the Apostles, one of the extraordinary things is to see how the early church reacted to suffering. Uh, it's recorded of the original disciples after their first beating. And as they're leaving court, it says this in Acts 5.40, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now, this is a spirit-given thing, my friend. This is not natural. This is something God does in us. But when they were really under the cosh, literally, they'd just been beaten up, they're walking out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the gospel of Christ, to suffer dishonor for his name. Now, let's be real. What does all this stuff mean for us here in Edinburgh today, where we don't really face being beaten up? What will it mean for us to live lives worthy of the gospel as gospel partners in this church? Well, in essence, it will mean the same thing, will it not? Uh, we need to be people who are united in the gospel. United together in the face of a hostile, unbelieving world. The truth is that the great majority of people in Edinburgh believe that Christianity is either irrelevant or rubbish... And some are starting to think that it's even dangerous. Some of that's getting into some of our leaders' heads. They think it's irrelevant, rubbish, or even dangerous. 
That's what the great majority of people in Edinburgh believe. And if we only live in our cocoons, we'll never sense it. But if we get out there and engage with people, that's what we will find. And the challenge for us as a church is to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, do you think that that's a good description of our church, of where we're at right now? What does is, what is standing firm, striving together, suffering courageously mean for us? Well, at the very least, surely it will mean that we are committed to working together to see the gospel spread. Let me ask you some simple questions of application. Because I want you to think about how this is going to challenge uh, each one of us, who's going to challenge you today. Have we identified ourselves as Christians in our work? Do people in your work know that you're a Christian? Have you identified yourself as a Christian? Do your neighbors know that you're a Christian? Have you identified yourself with a specific church as a gospel partner? Now, for us, that means becoming a member. Quite simple. Uh, you know, this is a, a public meeting. Uh, we're so glad you're here. People come for various reasons. Uh, but the way that you identify yourself with us is not simply turning up on a Sunday. It's by becoming a member with us, by saying, I am a gospel partner with this church. I'm standing on the gospel, contending for the gospel with you. And let me ask you, in what ways are you contending for the faith of the gospel? Right now, in what ways practically are you involved in this? Let me put it another way. If you stopped attending Charlotte Chapel, would that make any difference to the advance of the gospel? Would anybody notice that you'd left? Is anybody counting on you? Would anyone have to cover what you do to keep the church on track? If you were to leave your workplace, uh, would it make a difference on the gospel witness in your workplace? Would it make any difference at all? Would people be sad at our leaving because we're such an encouraging and joyful worker for the advance of the gospel? Or would people actually be relieved because all we do is sit back firing negative and critical comments? It's a bit too practical, isn't it? If you were to stop being at your college or your school or your place of work or move from your neighborhood, would that be sad news to other Christians who are gospel partners with you? Would they be going, oh, it's, oh we're going to so miss them. They make such a difference. Is that what they're saying about you if you were to do that? All this talk of suffering for Christ, let's, let's earth that in the reality of our lives. Have we, have we made any self-denying choices in order to serve others? and serve the spread of the gospel. Let's forget about being beaten with clubs. Have we ever done something that just put ourselves out? Took up some of our time, took up some of our energy, took up some of our resources so that the gospel would be advanced. Have we ever made a sacrificial choice that cost us because we want to see the gospel advance? Simple things like helping in the nursery so that young families can come and hear the gospel or being willing to pick up older people and drive them to fellowship groups. Simple things, everyday things, that show that we put ourselves out for the spread of the gospel. Do I share the gospel with others? Do you? Do you share the gospel with others? Do you share anything about Jesus with others? 
maybe we're not skilled at laying out the whole of salvation history, but when people say, how was your weekend? Do we actually say, do you know what? Church was incredible. This is what I learned about God in church this week. Simple statement, stop and move on. You don't have to lay everything out there, but do we let people know that that's what's central to us? That's what we're about. Do I disciple others? Now, these are questions of application that I'd really want to encourage you to pray about and think about. I am, I have to tell you, I am so encouraged by the number of people that I've met at Charlotte Chapel who are cheerfully making self-denying choices to advance the gospel. This church is literally full of people like this, and I'm, I just keep meeting them. I am genuinely so thrilled to see how many people are living their lives in their workplace, in their neighborhoods, and in this church to advance the gospel. Praise God for people like that. My question, is that true of you? Are we united with, with them, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel? Because do you know what? That is what citizens of heaven do. That's how you know a citizen of heaven, because they're engaged in that sort of life. That's what a life worthy of the gospel really looks like when we're on mission together in life. And we need God's grace, don't we? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have poured blessing upon blessing into our lives uh, since we have trusted Christ. Indeed, every spiritual blessing is ours. Lord, you've granted us citizenship of heaven. You've, you've brought us into a relationship with Christ so that our sins are forgiven and we have a Lord and Savior. Father, we know why you have made us and the purpose of our life and every day you shower us with countless blessings and we thank you and we praise you. Father, we ask that you would help us to so meditate upon your gospel that it would shape our minds and our lives so that we will live in a way that is worthy of this gospel. And we ask that you do this work in us by your Holy Spirit to the praise of your glory in Christ's precious name. Amen. As we come to the table, we're going to sing a song to help us reflect.